Good morning, it's in WTUL New Orleans News and Views. Today is Monday, May 11th. It's 10 a.m. Today we'll start off with the Louisiana Budget Project's podcast called Did You Know? This episode is on unemployment insurance, and they talk with Louisiana Budget Project policy analyst Neva Butkus about that, and then they break down what the recently passed coronavirus stimulus bills do for the benefits and what Governor John Bell Edwards and Louisiana Workforce Commission should do to take full advantage of the new federal funding in order to get money in the hands of as many unemployed workers as possible. This episode was produced on and put out on April 2nd, 2020. Next, we'll get into Counterspin, as always on Monday mornings. Today, it is Ricardo Salvador on the food system and COVID-19. Here we go. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Did You Know podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Carson. Today, we are talking all unemployment insurance. I know that's a topic that's on a lot of people's minds. It's a complex topic that many people are trying to wrap their head around. And luckily, we have our policy analyst, Neva Butkus, who has taken a deep dive into this and uh, tried to master um, this complex topic. So welcome aboard, Neva. Happy to be here from my couch, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here in my uh, makeshift home office. So, so let's just dive into this. This morning it came out that 6.6 million people filed for unemployment benefits last week alone. And in Louisiana, it jumped from around 2,000 to 72,000 in just a week. And we're almost at uh, those numbers that we saw directly after Hurricane Katrina. Um, but I know there's been some substantive action um, in Congress to kind of address this. Can you just bring us up to speed on what's going on and just everything um, that, uh, that are in these bills? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, that 70,000, you know, we're going to probably be seeing the Workforce Commission's um, additional week numbers in the next few days. So it'll be really interesting to see uh, what the next week looks like. Um, mm-hmm. Because, yeah, we're we're seeing numbers that we hadn't seen since Hurricane Katrina. And obviously, this is going to be a much more prolonged crisis um, yep. in regards to unemployment. So these numbers aren't, we are not really anticipating them going down really anytime soon. Um so uh, Congress has passed three bills, kind of like three um, coronavirus relief acts, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the second and third ones have a lot to do with unemployment insurance, which is great because unemployment insurance is one of the single-handedly most effective programs um, to help uh, kind of mitigate a recession and the, and the effects yeah. of a recession. And, and I'd also like to add that you know, a recession's happening right now, and, and, but th- that's, that's what we want to happen. Um, which is, you know, not the case in 2008 or, or in other times, but a recession right now means people are staying home mm-hmm. and that public health is being prioritized. Um, so the recession part is inevitable if we want to prioritize public health, but, sure. um, a, you know, the, the suffering, the financial suffering of, of millions of Americans and Louisianans, um, that is not inevitable if policymakers make intentional decisions to ensure that everybody has the resources they need to ride out this storm. Exactly. So, 
so those bills were a good start. Um, hopefully there's more coming down the pipeline, but I'll kind of break down what those, you know, what those entail. So the first one, uh, or well, the second of the three, but the first one with, with a, a, um, unemployment insurance in it was the Families First Act. And there was a billion dollars in there for, um, for unemployment insurance. And it's kind of divided into two pots of money. The first $500 million is going to the states to kind of ramp up their administrative sides of things. You know, like we just said, we just jumped from a couple thousand to 70,000 claims in a week. That takes more staff, more time, you know, better servers. Um, And the federal government understands that. And so they're giving money to the states to uh, start upgrading their technology and upgrading their, you know, uh, expanding their staff to accommodate that huge influx of claims. Um, the second $500 million is actually going to basically like turn on for a state when their yeah. unemployment uh, rate increases by 10%. And honestly, Louisiana is probably almost there already. <laughs> yeah. And they knew that they, they, they knew every state eventually would, yeah, would hit that mark. Um, and that number is going to kind of come down to address the influx of claims um, for states that have made a few intentional decisions uh, such as waiving the one week um, waiting requirement. Basically, if you uh, apply for unemployment insurance, there's kind of like a week lapse where you don't receive any benefits based on the time you were terminated um, by your employer to receiving benefits. They like skip a week of benefits, basically. That's not going to happen anymore. It's going to be retroactively. Um, people be, will be paid for it. Uh, we waived the work search requirements. Uh, this is all through executive order by Governor Edwards. Um, the work search requirement uh, was exactly what it sounds like. And obviously we don't really want people searching for work right now. They should stay home and, yeah. <laughs> and not talk to people and, or, or, or not, you know, be face to face with people and, and not be out and about. So, um, so we wanted to waive that. It doesn't make sense right now. Uh, and then they also waived employer rating, which basically, you know, if you are terminated from an employer, um, in many cases, that employer then has to um, pay into the uh, state trust fund, the, um, the trust fund that, you know, handles unemployment insurance. So we're basically saying, like, employers aren't going, if, if, if you're letting go of people because of the coronavirus, that's the reasons for your layoff, um, either directly or indirectly, we're not going to um, penalize you. Uh, by making you pay into the trust fund, the federal government's going to kind of make up that difference. So those are the three things that we've waived um, and all that was required in, in families first. Um, so so we're in good shape there, but there's still a lot more we can do. Um, and that's because of the CARES Act, which uh, is the third bill that was passed. Um, the CARES Act realized that a lot of states' unemployment benefits are not enough for people to get by. Especially included. Yeah, Louisiana included. Our average benefit and you know, waves kind of weekly to week to week. Our average will move a little bit. Um, but but our average weekly payout is between like usually about 215, 220 dollars. So, you know, times that by four, and that's not your mortgage for the mo- yep. for a lot of people. So um, especially if you have children and and um yeah, it's not ideal. And the max in Louisiana is two hundred and forty-seven dollars. A week, so that's the max you could get at any point in time as a oh, weekly wow. benefit. Yeah, so still, you know, multiplied by four, not a lot of people's mortgages. <laughs> so, Back of the napkin math alone, still doesn't add up. Yeah, let alone food and and car insurance and and yeah, it's it's so the states, um, most of the states are inadequate. Louisiana a, a little bit more so than others, and um, 
the federal government realizes that a lot of state benefits took a large hit during 2008. And, you know, it, it, that was done on purpose too. a lot of legislators uh, after the 2008 crash kind of gutted un unemployment insurance benefits um, quietly as things started to rebound. And, and, and this now we're, you know, back in the same situation with a worse, a, a worse off program. So what the CARES Act does is it um, helps uh, get just generally uh, more money in more people's pockets. So um, the CARES Act is going to supplement the state benefits for another $600 a week. Um, so everybody who gets unemployment insurance will be receiving a $600 a week check from this, from wow. either the state or the federal government, depending on how each state wants to set up, you know, that receiving that money. So um, that's really fantastic because it's going to drastically increase people's uh, cash flow, um, which is going to do two things. It's going to allow people, like I said before, to stay home. Um, they can stay home and they can't, don't go outside and they stay away from other people. And that's hopefully going to overall reduce the burden on our healthcare system as more people can comfortably stay home and not worry about finances. And, you know, like I said, just ride out this storm um, and not worried about being evicted or, or keeping the lights on. So unemployment insurance historically um, has kind of also left out your non-traditional workers. It's kind of a program that, you know, uh, fits the model that you would see a couple decades ago in terms of like what the workforce looks like, right? Mm -hmm. So today we have more contract workers, we have more gig workers. Um, that wasn't the case when this was developed. You know, most people just like stayed at one company for a really long time and got a pension. Um, and so uh, unemployment insurance hasn't really grown with the changes in our in our workforce. And so um, this bill, the, the third bill, the CARES Act, also recognizes that. So it created uh, kind of a couple different pots of in unemployment insurance that people who don't fit into like the typical one can kind of uh, uh, fit into. So, um, so we've got a few different uh, types. So there's the pandemic unemployment assistance program, which is going to be the $600 a week. Um, and then you have uh, Oh yeah, so the pandemic unemployment insurance at $600 a week um, is going to supplement uh, people who qualify for their state program and anybody who does it. So whether that's, you know, because they work part-time or they're self-employed or they're an independent contractor or they're a gig worker and their state doesn't, you know, their state excludes them. Pretty much anyone who's excluded from state unemployment insurance is still going to get that $600 a week, whether they get their state benefits or not. So that's really fantastic. Um, and then the other pot that they've developed is the pandemic emergency unemployment compensation. Um, and that is basically another 13 weeks of uh, unemployment insurance. So the states usually max out at 26 weeks. And the reason it was set at 26 weeks is because 25 weeks during the last recession was the um, time it typically took to find a job. Okay. So yeah, it was just over 25 weeks was the average kind of person's uh, time they had to spend finding a new job. And so, um, so they made it 26 weeks. In Louisiana, you can get 26 weeks and, um, and the pandemic emergency unemployment compensation is going to provide another 13 weeks of unemployment benefits. Okay. So those are kind of the, that's kind of, the, it's a lot, but those are kind of the breakdowns of the, of the two acts that are um, are interjecting a lot of money into the states right now. Okay. So it seems like, and you explain in your blog um, that 
Louisiana is positioned to receive the money that that federal government is uh, giving out through these two bills, but that there's a couple things that Governor Edwards could do to kind of maximize these benefits. Can you kind of walk us through what those steps are? Yeah, I would be happy to. Um, yeah, so we, we've kind of done the initial things necessary to uh, make sure that we're taking advantage of some of this money, but there's kind there's the difference. Um, we, we could be doing more to ensure that more Louisianans are going to qualify for our state benefits. And we could be doing more to ensure that populations that are often overlooked um, are going to be knowledgeable about the process and knowledgeable about what benefits they qualify for. Because, you know, I, I mentioned that unemployment insurance is going to help public, sa uh, public health in the short term, but in the long term, making sure everybody has this cash on hand to pay their bills and, and purchase things um, in the long run is going to help our economy bounce back a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. I, I would also add that unemployment insurance benefits are taxable. Uh, so this is going to be taxed. I'm not sure if it's the same rate as general regular income, but it, it, it is going to be taxed at a certain rate by the state. Um, so it could also be beneficial to the state budget because we know that um, we know that recessions take a toll uh, on our state budgets when they happen. So, um, so yeah, we, we kind of outlined a few recommendations for Governor Edwards and his staff to consider that we think could be taken by executive order. Um, and then we also outlined some recommendations for the Louisiana Workforce Commission. So um, we, you know, we hope they, that they take these things into consideration so that they can uh, ensure that their unemployment insurance programs are um, being well communicated to people and more people can sign up for benefits. So we're all better off in the long run. So uh, in regards to our recommendations for Governor Edwards, um, we want to, we would be, you know, um, we ideally would like him to waive the minimum base earnings of $1,200. So the way they calculate whether or not you qualify for unemployment insurance is they look at like a base period of work for you and how much money you made in that, um, that time frame, uh, and it's a little bit more complex than that. But for you know, the sake of the argument, um, you basically have to make around twelve hundred dollars to qualify. But we know in Louisiana, especially low wage workers in places like the Louisiana Delta, where unemployment's just perpetually really high. You know, they might have inconsistent work history because um, of past layoffs or having their hours reduced, or yeah. maybe a family member you know fell ill and they had to care for them and they couldn't go to work, or maybe they fell ill themselves. Or, you know, on, on the other side of the state, down by the Gulf, we know that a lot of work is really seasonal. If you're a fisherman or if you're a crab fisherman or, or you, um, you own a shrimp boat, your work is going to be very seasonal. And because if you're, you know, if your work history um, is seasonal and maybe some other things happen, you might not make that base period base mm -hmm. amount for you know a variety of reasons but you should still be entitled to benefits during this time so we want to waive that minimum base earnings um so that any worker with any income can just qualify and we don't have to go into the nitty-gritty of you know what happened in their work history yeah so um because i said the more the more workers that we can get benefits to the better off we're all going to be <laughs> so we want, uh, we would ideally like to do that. We ideally would like to see the formula that calculates state benefits kind of just be re replaced with a flat rate. Um, the state of Louisiana currently, as I mentioned, uh, the weekly benefits only $220 a week, um, but people can get as low as $10 
and then as high mm -hmm. as $247. So, um, you know, the $10 plus the 600 from the federal government a week, still not, you know, still not ideal. Louisiana could be doing a lot more to ensure that we're taking care of our own. Um, so we think that the formula could be waived and we should just implement a flat rate. So it's simple, it's simple to administer. Everyone just gets the same amount um, if they qualify for the benefits. Just something that I wanted to get some clarification on. So if, if the governor took our recommendation um, and implemented a flat rate that's above the current $228 uh, that's average right now, the federal government would pay for that increase. Is that right? Yes, they would pay for the increase for the extended benefits uh, portion of it. Um, if we, okay. we could raise uh, the, the amount Louisiana, you know, implements as its, um, as its state rate from, you know, the average of 220 to 300, 400, we said $370 because um, that's the national average. And uh, the state of Louisiana would be, um, we'd be obligated to uh, take that on for the initial part of their unemployment insurance, but then the extended benefits portion of it, that additional 13 weeks, the federal government would pay for that. So, okay. so it would only, yep. And so, um, yeah, we recommended $370 a week. I would also be happy with seeing, you know, just everyone get the max rate of 270 or 247 sure. because we know that if you're, you know, a bartender or if you work in a restaurant, um, and you're making a lot of cash tips that are really hard to track, uh, you might, your income much, might, might be much higher, but then whenever you get that unemployment check from the state, it might be, you know, a hundred bucks, 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. um, and that's enough to live off of. So I, we, we're making the ask that we increase that, that, that state benefit um, to make sure that we're taking care of our own. Mm -hmm. And then the third recommendation we had for Governor Edwards and his staff was to consider enacting work sharing. Um, a lot of states are exploring doing this through executive order. It usually has to be done through the legislature, but as of right now, the legislature can't, in, in many states, the legislature can't convene um, yeah. due to the circumstances. So uh, what in Louisiana had work share for a portion of time, but we repealed it in 2014. Um, basically what WorkShare is, and it's also called short-term compensation sometimes, um, WorkShare allows companies to, um, in a state to kind of go into an agreement with their workforce commission or their department of labor. And basically they express their department of labor. They say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do mass layoffs, um, but I can't pay everyone a full-time wage and, uh, or like, I just need to reduce people's hours, which a lot of companies are having to do right now um, to avoid layoffs. So what, what work sharing does is it allows uh, the company to um, basically decrease everybody's hours. So let's say they, you know, a company has all of their employees decreased, uh, has their hours decreased by 50%. The employer would then only be obligated to pay for the 50% um, of hours worked and unemployment insurance would kind of step in and pay that other 50%. So everyone's okay. worker, their, their, uh, everybody's hours would be decreased, but their wages wouldn't change through a, an agreement um, uh, through unemployment insurance and their, um, and their employer, kind of like sharing that cost of their, full, of their full salary. So what this does is it keeps people from having to do mass layoffs. And the, the more workers that we can prevent from being disconnected to their employer, the better. Uh, you know, we don't want to be 
you know, looking down the road three, four months when all of this blows over, um, we don't want, you know, a million Louisianans all looking for work. Yeah. So the, at the same time. So um, the, the more we can prevent that those layoffs from happening through creative programs like WorkShare, um, the better. And the CARES Act actually subsidizes 100% of WorkShare for states that already have it. Uh, mm. We don't already have it. We we did have it and we repealed it. Um, but the we make it retroactive to 2014 anyway. Right? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but instead, if we enact it, you know, post um, the CARES Act, this the federal government has already agreed to subsidize 50 percent of it. So Louisiana would be on the hook for some of the money, but the federal government would take up a large portion of it as well. So. Um, and it, it sounds it sounds like such a good idea because you mentioned this earlier that this is a recession, but it's being caused by a global health crisis that once we can kind of tackle this crisis and get back to a sense of normalcy, the economy will bounce back, but it'll take a little bit longer if everyone has to submit uh, applications and resumes and and try to find a job. If they can just go back to their previous employment, we can get things back on track quicker. Yep, exactly. Okay, so you laid out um, some things that the governor could do, but you mentioned earlier that 500 million of the $1 billion, do I have that, those numbers right? Yes, yep. That, that is basically going to outreach efforts for uh, the states. And there, there are a lot of things that states can do to ensure that everyone who qualifies for unemployment benefits receive them. But unfortunately, Louisiana is one of the worst states at doing this. I think it's only 11% of unemployed workers in Louisiana actually receive benefits. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. What can the Louisiana Workforce Commission do to, to just get the word out, to, to not have any barriers? Uh, basically, how can we get the, the money that's coming from the federal government in the hands of as many unemployed workers as possible? Yeah. Um, so no, you're right. The the the, fir- the the Families First Act, there's a billion dollars, the first 500 million or four, yeah, just purely like ramping up your administration and outreach efforts. And that's even that second pot of 500 million that is going to trigger on when unemployment, you know, starts increasing in the States. Um, that also is going to, you know, outreach efforts and things like that. Um, you know, but that's, that's more tailored towards like specific aspects of, of unemployment. But yeah, the whole pot of money basically is to, is to ramp up these efforts so that we can get more people on unemployment insurance and handle that increase in caseload. So um like you said, 11% of unemployed Louisianans uh, receive unemployment benefits. Um, There's only four states in the country that have a worse um, recipiency rate than us. And um, we, you know, we talked to some national partners and uh, had some discussions with people who have navigated the unemployment insurance process and, and kind of came up with a list of recommendations that we hope that the Workforce Commission considers to you know make some creative and intentional step or to take some creative and intentional steps to ensure that the communities that are often overlooked um are are not being overlooked um and we're getting money into those hands the, the hands of the unemployed in those communities as well so the first thing that we um uh, kind of brought to their attention was that you know louisiana is one of the worst 
broadband access, internet access rates yeah. in the country, <laughs> especially in really rural areas. Um, so if you do not, and the libraries are closed right now, right? I think mm. every library system is closed right Good now point. in the state. So where do you go online to, to even understand what the benefits are um, or, or if you qualify, like there's a, there's a number on, you know, the workforce commission's website that you can call and apply for benefits. But if you can't get to the website, you also don't have that number. So, so it it, is, so there's, you know, it's kind of a perfect storm for a lot of these communities that are going to be, you know, very much low income and and often communities of color, they're going to miss out on these benefits. um, And it's just going to increase the, the racial wealth gap after this. So, mm-hmm. um, so we were uh, pressing for the workforce commission to consider maybe hiring people to do outreach in those areas specifically. You know that money that's coming down from the federal government—it's very vague and unrestricted. They want the states to do what they need to do um, to address the issues in their own communities. So um, that could be used to hire outreach workers to go to the Louisiana Delta and hang flyers at grocery stores and food and, and, and school feeding sites where a lot of these that's communities a, are, already, are already going, you know? So, um, so that way they have the number they can call. It can have an explainer that, you know, kind of gives them a lowdown of what benefits they do and do not qualify for. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, you know, that could be done in conjunction with grassroots organizations, um, that we often have, you know, Louisiana budget project, uh, and many of our partners already work with and, um, yeah. And I think actually, Jamie, you were the one that um, also whenever we've had previous conversations about outreach in this, you were the one who mentioned that, you know, the TV and radio, which it sounds so simple, but we forget about it in the day of the internet. Yep. <laughs> TV and radio are, are sure far way to make sure that a lot of these communities um, are receiving this information. So whether that's, you know, Governor Edwards has been doing really fantastic press conferences almost every day, uh, giving people updates on what's going on with the coronavirus and, and public health. So, you know, maybe we need to start push it, pushing for that information to be broadcasted over TV and radio during those press conferences or just paid ads or, or something just to make sure that everybody, regardless of their zip code, internet access or socioeconomic status, um, is going to, has a, a medium to hear about these benefits and what they are, uh, you know, if they qualify. Yeah, and I think we, and I really want to stress that we're not, saying that currently the the workforce mission is doing a bad job. I I think everyone knows from when we mentioned earlier, they went from 2000 to 72,000 applications in a week. I mean, they're, they're overwhelmed, but what the point of this money is, is, is to allow them to widen their efforts, to hire more staff, to get more resources out there. So we're just providing recommendations on what we think, uh, some of the best practices could be used for this pot of money that's coming down. Yes, definitely. Um, especially after conversations with, you know, organizations like the National Employment Law Project um, and and the Economic Policy Institute and a lot of these organizations that do um, labor law and, and, and uh, economic opportunity policy. Um, it was through conversations with them that we were able to kind of develop these these recommendations um, that we want to pass on to the states. So, yeah. Well, we commend uh, the governor and his staff and everyone at the Workforce Commission. Just everyone who's is just just helping the people of the state handle this unprecedented crisis. Um, please check out Neva's blog at www.labudget.org. 
we have uh, some more coronavirus related um, publications um, up there. We're looking at doing some more uh, outreach and some more efforts uh, for unemployment insurance. We know it's a complex topic and uh, a lot of people in the state are going to be looking for it. So we hope you uh, check us out on social media, Facebook and Twitter, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. And if you are listening to this podcast and you um, have found yourself unemployed due to this crisis, we would love to hear about your app, your experience. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. We would love to hear about your experience as you are navigating the unemployment insurance process. So the Louisiana budget project is currently developing a survey that we're going to distribute online. Um, and this survey is going to just kind of uh, help people document um, their experiences, whether, you know, well, did your employer, you know, give you the information you needed up front when you were let, laid off? Um, what was your experience navigating um, the actual application process? And uh, the survey will also be translated um, and available for Spanish speakers and Vietnamese speakers if English is not their first language or if uh, English, uh, if they are um, less than proficient in English. And, and we really want to make an intentional effort to do that because another one of our recommendations, so the Workforce Commission was ensuring that more content, um, especially on the first page of the website, was translated for um, speakers uh, who may struggle understanding or reading English. So. And if you don't want to wait for uh, the survey, feel free to reach out to us at lbp at labudget.org, lbp at labudget.org. We check in that email uh, daily. So feel free to reach out. Yep. All right, y'all. Everyone stay safe. We'll talk to y'all soon. All right. Thanks, Jamie. To Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, while you may be forgiven for seeing dysfunction in the image of farmers dumping produce while people are lining up at food banks, that actually is the dominant U.S. food system functioning. It just isn't set up to adapt quickly and responsively in a crisis. So what does that say about the resiliency of the system by which food is produced and distributed and its relationship to human and planetary needs and health? As for food workers, farm laborers, meat packers, grocery and restaurant workers, how can they be deemed essential and yet treated as expendable? As with other things, there is hope that the spotlight the pandemic is putting on problems in our food system could be the light by which we make changes. We'll talk about that with Ricardo Salvador, senior scientist and director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. In a May 1st story predicting two more years for the coronavirus pandemic, CNN quotes Michael Osterholm, who directs the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Quote, This thing's not going to stop until it infects 60 to 70 percent of people. 
The idea that this is going to be done soon defies microbiology, close quote. Antibody test results have bolstered disease experts' consensus that coronavirus is significantly more lethal than the seasonal flu. A fatality rate of 0.5% might even be conservative, but assuming that, CNN should have noted that accepting a 60 to 70% infection rate means accepting a million deaths or more. The network and others citing Osterholm's comments should also note that it's not a law of microbiology that requires that we allow the coronavirus to infect hundreds of millions of people, but a choice made by governments, as the varied results obtained by different countries demonstrate. There's usually an unspoken assumption that the U.S. can't or mustn't do what China did, which was to pursue a strategy based not just on discouraging, but on halting transmission of the coronavirus. It can't be that quarantines are seen as incompatible with democracy. 30 U.S. states have them for out-of-state visitors. The idea seems to be that effective quarantines are incompatible with democracy, but that's not true either, as nations with elected governments like New Zealand have also managed to bring new cases down to near zero while protecting workers and jobs. It may be unlikely that the United States will summon the political will to implement a realistic plan for not just delaying but stopping COVID-19, but it's crucial for media reporting on options in the fight against the outbreak to distinguish between can't and won't, especially when the other option is letting a million people die. Likewise, epidemiologist and AIDS activist Greg Gonsalves took the New York Times to task for a May 5th front-pager headlined, U.S. quietly fears viruses' daily toll will soon double. Calling it a study in apologetics and studied neutrality, Gonsalves notes that there is nothing that indicates that any of what is transpiring is due to decisions, human agency, real choices by real people in power. Adding that he's not asking the paper to pick up an ideological cudgel, but simply to stop and think about what it means to turn a story about a stark, unprecedented political failure into a battle between the U.S. and a virus. Finally, and on theme, the Washington Post ran a column by former Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels, headed, When this pandemic is over, let's avoid the partisan blame game. Daniels is worried about a round of what he calls tribal recrimination, like the one after the Iraq War when many Americans were so déclassé as to assign actual responsibility to actual people for the deceptions that led to the deaths of millions. At one point in this high-minded assault on accountability, Daniel says it turned out that Iraq's WMDs, quote, weren't real. They proved to be a dictator's bluff, close quote, offhandedly reintroducing one of the most Orwellian fables of that war, that Saddam Hussein tricked America into invading Iraq by making us believe that he had weapons of mass destruction. In reality, of course, Iraq stated again and again that they had no such weapons, for all the good it did. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Listeners have likely seen the images, farmers dumping milk, smashing eggs, plowing produce under. At the same time, in the same country, people line up at food banks, unable to access or afford nutritious food. 
At the nexus of the health crisis and the economic crisis of COVID-19 is a food crisis, and it's along every dimension, from farm laborers to restaurant workers to hungry people. As with so many things, the pandemic didn't create the problems, but it's making them harder to deny. Ricardo Salvador is senior scientist and director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Ricardo Salvador. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, if we could just talk first about the supply chain itself, what is it about the system, the food system we have that makes it a reasonable or necessary response to the crisis for some farmers to plow vegetables under that people could be eating? It has to do with the structure of agriculture. And I think your question is very well framed. It actually is a logical thing for most farmers to plow under their food rather than try to deal with a food system that is very specialized, that operates at very large scale. Uh, It's very concentrated. And it operates along a few well-established channels. So it's important to understand what those channels are to then understand why it's logical for farmers to do what is being reported, as well as to understand that this issue of food waste is a serious problem, and it is not exclusively on farmers. It's an issue of the structure of the system. So those channels that I'm referring to have to do with the primary ways in which we all eat. So generalizing broadly, prior to the pandemic, we all ate one of two ways. Either we went out someplace where somebody else took care of all the details. We don't have to worry about what's in season, how it's grown, how it's prepared. We just ask on a whim for whatever we're in the mood for. Somebody prepares it, it's delivered to us. Somebody cleans up after us. And that system is supplied by a channel, a sector in the food system, which is called food service. And it operates almost invisibly to the majority of us. But if you do see it, you see it in service entries and back alleys with semi-trailers delivering frozen food or packaged food in particular quantities that are suitable for the restaurants, cafeterias, the other institutions that deliver the food in the way that I described And by the way, we spend most of our money for food that comes to us in that particular channel. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the money that we spend for food, we spend for food at restaurants or food that we eat out. Then the other channel is the one that is overwhelmed right now because it's actually having to do both its own job as well as to backstop for all the food that we normally would be eating when we go out. And this is the grocery channel. And... uh, It's important to understand that each of these channels have their own distribution networks, Mm -hmm. their own packaging methods, their own volume, transportation, and that if you prepare for one, you're not prepared for the other. You've packaged, you've labeled, you've processed for one of them and not the other. And so the, the system is not very fungible. What makes the most logic to someone that just reads about all of this waste is to say, well, as you said in your question, there are all these people lined up at food pantries because suddenly they're unemployed. And so that channel, which is referred to in the food system as the emergency food channel, actually is a redistribution channel. So usually food that is not used or that for some other reason, you know, it's been mislabeled or it doesn't meet a particular quality standard or is left over. That's the stuff that typically would go over to the emergency food channel. 
So nobody is equipped. There is no switch in a place where you can suddenly say, oh, that channel needs this much more food. And the way in which folks at food pantries and the people using those food pantries can use the food is in very small quantities, you know, nothing like what these major food channels can deliver. And so now let's go back to your question about farmers. The way this whole thing looks to farmers is that they've contracted typically in advance. Uh, You know, they're making huge investments, many of them millions of dollars in advance of putting a crop in the field. And if their contracts are canceled, someone still has to pay for the picking, the processing, the transportation. And it can't be on farmers. You know, that's that's something that somebody else needs to pay. Food pantries can't pay for that. As I just told you, they usually receive what others can't use. So they don't have the resources to do that. So it may be that these places are just miles from each other, but there is no way that the costs that are involved are going to be covered by the structure of the food system as it is right now. And for farmers, if they have produce, if that's what we're talking about, return it to their soil as a way of recovering some of their costs because that turns into fertility for their soil, for instance, just just one example. So that way it's not a total loss for them, but it is a major loss for them. In other words, they're not realizing profit. So that's that's the structure of our food system. That's why we get some of these inanities. And you can understand that if your business model as a farmer is based on serving a particular or selling a providing a particular thing to restaurants or to hotels, you they can't just shift on a dime what they're doing is what is what I hear. Yeah, exactly. And and I will just clarify, very few of them actually do sell directly to restaurants or to hotels. They typically will sell to uh, contractors, you know, very large firms that actually handle the the packaging and the transportation. Like Cargill or somebody. Right, companies like that. And and uh, and then those folks are the folks that turn around and provide the exact packaging, the exact form that's required by either food service or grocery. Well, let's talk about another aspect of the industry. Listeners may have heard that workers in meatpacking plants, for example, are falling sick in large numbers and in some cases being threatened with job loss if they want to protect their health. You've written recently for Medium about the conditions for agricultural workers and in strong terms. What should we know about the way the agricultural system treats people? Yeah, you know, this is one of the biggest revelations of the pandemic. It, it is applying a stress test to our entire society, not just the food system. But when it comes to the food system, one of the things that it's revealing is a semi underside that is well known to everybody within agriculture, but tends to be a revelation to people outside of agriculture. Outside of agriculture, I think it's pretty common for people to feel like it is a very vast global web of logistics that delivers anything you want just in time because that's the way that most of us experience it. So you imagine, you know, computer systems and sophisticated software and blinking lights and high technology. And in fact, all of that does exist. But none of that would work if you didn't have people that were in the soil working to harvest, that were not actually hacking away at carcasses and meatpacking plants, that weren't pushing enormous amounts of groceries onto shelves and doing all of the back of the house work that none of us ever see. Mm-hmm. And that system, you know, I referred to this term as the structure of agriculture, is a system that looks very much like that social hierarchy that many of us will remember from grade school, where we had slaves at the bottom of the pyramid and the pharaoh or king up at the top of the pyramid. Fewer and fewer people benefiting as you go up the, the pyramid. 
in agriculture, we still have pretty much that system. And in the United States in particular, because of our history, not very long ago, the people that performed all of the jobs that I just listed right now or their equivalents, those were performed by enslaved people, people whom we forced to do this for no pay, for no compensation. We appropriated their labor. And that era is not that long ago. Mm-hmm. You know, as everyone listening knows, emancipation didn't occur, at least officially, until 1865. But the fact is that emancipation never really came to agriculture in the sense that we still don't pay the full value of the labor that's required to make the entire system work. Now, you know, I could spend a lot of time talking to you about that, but we recently have been forced to recognize how essential these workers are by actually giving them that official designation. Essential means without you, the whole thing doesn't work. But there's asymmetries here. One major asymmetry is we say on the one hand that they're essential. We would like to compel them to go to work so that the rest of us could have the computer skill ordering in our T-bone sticks and what have you. But we don't pay these people in a way that reflects how essential they are. That's one asymmetry. The other symmetry is that they do work that no one in this country is willing to do. There's lots of ways that I can support that statement, but one way is that under high periods of unemployment, like the one that we're going into right now, you would think that unemployed people would seek whatever job is available to them. So there is a labor shortage in agriculture to do all of the field labor and packing and processing that I just described, and Americans are not doing that work. That is actually verifiable. One of the ways that you can verify it is that we have a program that's called the Domestic Guest Worker Program that seeks to backfill for the labor shortage in agriculture when domestic workers will not do that work. And they are required to show that they've advertised, that they've recruited, that they've done everything possible to hire citizens to do this work. And only when they certify that they can't get enough people domestically to do that work Are they then granted an allotment of visas to bring in people from outside of the country? And that's actually how we run the food system. So they're essential in the sense that there's a supply and demand issue. There's a mismatch of supply and demand. There's a demand for agricultural labor. We're not filling in it domestically until we bring in people internationally, migrants, to do this work for us. And we exploit them because we don't pay them the fair value of their labor. So that's the structure of our food system. It's very much modeled on antebellum you know, plantation economics. It reminds me also of um, restaurants, you know, the so-called tipped wage, so that you can pay someone $2.13 an hour, you know, and that's stemming the history of that coming from restaurants along with the Pullman Porter Company just not wanting to pay formerly enslaved people, you know, and wanting them to have to rely on tips and that continues with us today. And every time folks try to get rid of that tipped wage or to raise it, the restaurant industry complains, you know, um, that they simply don't. It's another category of person that has been designated essential, but expendable, you, you might say. That's it, exactly. And I learned from you that cravenly, the farm industry, those domestic guest workers that you were just talking about, the industry is now trying to cut their wages? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a phenomenon that all of us are observing at the moment that we could make this a political conversation, and, and I will try to steer away from that. But the fact is that policy is involved. And the phenomenon that I'm referring to is the phenomenon that's known typically as the fog of war, 
when you have a major crisis that is absorbing the public's attention, this is a prime time to try to push through policy goals that normally would just be completely intolerable, unpalatable to the public. And so one of those goals is that in spite of the obviously exploitative nature of the structure of the food system that I've just described to you, major players in the system still want to squeeze more out of that supply chain. And they don't see the workers as people who have the same needs as they and everybody else in this country do to have such things as, for instance, occupational safety standards applied to their workplace, to have health benefits, to have retirement benefits, to earn enough to have dignified livelihood, meaning you can afford decent housing, you can afford to feed yourself and your family. We actually see them as inputs. You know, that's special agricultural language. So input is the machinery you need, the tractors and all of that. It's the fertilizers, the seeds that you need and so on. And labor is seen as an input. And the way that you try to uh, fatten up your profits is to cut the cost of your input so that you get greater margin. And so this is the policy agenda that is being driven right now under this fog of war underneath the pandemic. The language that the Secretary of Agriculture, who very much backs this agenda, has used, that he says that this is wage relief for farmers. What farmers actually need is fair prices for what they produce, which by and large they don't get right now. You know, they don't exist in a competitive environment and they don't have the leverage where they can actually negotiate fair prices for them. But that's actually what they need. If they could negotiate fair prices, they could afford to have it in their economy to pay all of their costs. But that's not the situation that we have right now. So what you have is the top of this pyramid that I described earlier, which is essentially the highly concentrated agribusiness sector, attempting to exploit the moment to cut as many costs as possible. And one of those costs is the cost of farm labor. And they're cravenly taking advantage of the fact that for all the reasons that I just described, these are people that are politically invisible. They don't have muscle. You know, many of them are domestic guest workers in the country. They sign paperwork that says they're only here to work in fields. That's all. And when they're done, they return home or else they're not documented. And so what are they going to do when they're exploited? Sue? They have no standing. And so that's being cravenly exploited. There was a very nice piece by him of, uh, of course, Chavo and yesterday's New York Times, whose headline just captures the situation that we're in right now. The headline is, if a worker is essential, they can't be illegal. Yes. That's the quandary that we're dealing with right now. That's the hypocrisy that we need to recognize in the nation's labor and immigration policy. We're not valuing these people for, at the very least, the value that they bring to the economy, much less as human beings. Well, how do we take our understanding of that situation and turn it into action to make things different? What can folks do? Well, I think we've actually reviewed some of these things, so I'll I'll give you a real quick list. So I mentioned that this is a stress test of the food system, and, you know, so the, the brittle points, the cracking points have become readily available. We need a food system that is fungible, that has redundancies built in. The the so-called efficiencies that have been built into the highly specialized industrial model that we have right now, we are now learning, do not serve us when you have a situation where a single thing that is unpredicted takes out one pillar of the food system and then the whole thing comes crumbling down. That's not the kind of food system that we need. We need one that is more distributed, meaning that there are more nodes within the food system that can respond 
in the volumes and quantities in the formats that are necessary for where people are going to be using this food. Now, a very good example of that is that the farmers that are doing well right now are the so-called small-scale family farmers. These are folks that produce in volumes and who distribute in local and regional networks where they can respond very quickly to where the schools are now becoming redistribution points for SNAP, uh, for instance, or for school food that needs to be picked up by students that otherwise might not have access to that food because they're not coming to school every day and so on, or through farmer's markets, another very important redistribution method, which is very fungible. So we're learning that that's actually what works. We need to invest more in these kinds of highly distributed systems and less in the highly concentrated systems. We need to reform immigration policy to recognize the economic value and the human rights that we need to accord to everyone that's making us wealthy and keeping us well-fed in this country. We need to reform labor standards so that it's safe for people that are working in the fields and it looks like they're living in the 21st century and not back in the 19th century or the 18th century. And there are very specific people who are responsible for making the decisions that I've just described. Everybody can talk to their congressional representatives and have them talk to their congressional leadership, you know, the senior leadership of, of Congress. Because these are the people who are pressured by the folks that are at the top of the food system pyramid. And the folks at the top of that food system pyramid, I'll just give you, you know, some actual organizations and names. Probably the single most influential agricultural lobby is the American Farm Bureau Federation. They say they represent farmers, but they actually represent agribusiness. And the president of that organization is Zippy Duvall. Let that man know what you think about everything that you've heard here. Somebody else that plays a very big role in terms of fruits and vegetable production in the United States is the president of the Western Growers Association. That individual president that leads that organization is a guy by the name of Dave Puglia. Let him know what you would like to see instead of the system that we have right now. The person that's carrying the water for all of this in the White House is President Trump's chief of staff. He very much says you know, his whole career has been about small government. That individual's name is Mark Meadows. And by the way, I'll remind everyone that we're living in a time, you know, where to quote Noam Chomsky a, a couple of weeks ago, every fiscal conservative is hiding, you know, their copy of Ayn Rand and is lining up for benefits from the nanny state. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of hypocrisy that we need to, uh, you know, throw in these people's faces because that's the urgency that the degree of exploitation and dysfunction that we're living through demands. Probably one of the biggest cheerleaders for this uh, dysfunctional food system that we have is the current Secretary of Agriculture, Secretary Purdue, Sonny Purdue. Uh, I would definitely uh, advise that people let him know that we're seeing everything that they're doing and the cynicism with which they're treating farm laborers in particular, but the way in which they're using the situation to essentially just throw more money at a system that clearly is failing. And the last set of people that I'll name, because they're in the headlines every day, even though folks don't know them by name, these are the folks that run the meatpacking industry in the country. And I'll particularly recommend that people contact Larry Pope, who heads Smithfield Foods, and Noel White, who heads Tyson Foods, because these are the folks that are making the decisions to force people to show up to work. They're interested in maintaining share value more than they're interested in preserving the health of their workers. They put out press releases saying that they value nothing more than the health of their workers, but they're forcing them to work under highly unsafe conditions given the ideology of this particular pandemic, the coronavirus. We know how to stave for their spread, 
but they're actually not willing to adopt the recommendations that come from CDC specifically because it would slow their production line. It would slow their volume. Well, this is happening to them anyway, which is why they're reacting in a way that demonstrates plutocracy in action. They've told the president what to do, and the president responded by saying through an executive order that these plants must remain open, you know, implicitly that workers are compelled to show up to work against their health interests. So these are the sorts of things that these leaders are condoning that they need to hear about that eaters are not going to support. We've been speaking with Ricardo Salvador of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. They're online at ucsusa.org. You can read his piece, Agribusiness is Using the COVID-19 Crisis to Slash Food Worker Wages, on medium.com. Thank you very much, Ricardo Salvador, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.